Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto here with our regular panel of dysfunctional Chicano Latino experts. Joining us today is Reiner Delgado, Danny Sosa, Alex Lozada, Francisco Lopez, and the indomitable Carlos Hernandez, straight out of San Anto. Today we are talking about gentrification, the changes in neighborhoods, and how developing a sense of our own community outside the boundaries of settler colonialism could be the key to building self-reliance. Let's get to it. I don't know if you saw it. I just put it in the chat. Oh, you did? All right, let's check it out. I have a picture to share. Hopefully you can see that photo. Not a good picture considering, uh, you know, 1997 was a period where some of us were there. Oh, this is Lansing. Yeah. Yeah, it's Lansing. Mm-hmm. That's a um, title Lansing. Dang, that's where the Mustang you know, sorry, bar used to be. Tad, was that where your apartment was? No. <laughs> no, but I can see why you would think that. <laughs> the um what is it what's the name of this street, Francisco? This is um it looks very that Grand similar. River? <laughs> no, his his was above the tattoo shop and the Ooh, and the caterer. Tattoo, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, the tattoo shop. Yeah. Yeah, that's Chavez. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the the thing so that I was thought it was a good part uh, of the discussion we had last time, mm-hmm. and we kind of touched on it because, as you can see, these aren't a bunch of businesses owned by large corporations. They're small owned businesses. Yeah. They're small small owner businesses. Not that they don't have a lot of money, but it's just an interesting in contrast to what we think of when we think of gentrification. Well, I think that... Do you want me to leave that picture up? You'll need to send it to me so that I can put it in the um, description for for the podcast. I think the thing that's really interesting about what happened there is that it follows a pretty classic pattern of gentrification that we see. You know, the north side of town has or was always traditionally considered the, uh, the Mexican barrio. You know, in fact, the north side of town is where most of the Mexicans in Lansing lived uh, at that time. I think it's probably still true. That whole part of town had become really run down. There was uh, a gentleman, his name was David Hollister. He was the mayor of Lansing and at the time and had long been considered a champion of the Chicano community. The reality is, is that Hollister was a champion of Hollister. And so he spent a lot of time working communities of color, you know, to his own political benefit. When the city applied, they applied for this grant to uh, spruce up neighborhoods. And what's really interesting is that the geographic area where the grant was uh, specifically excluded all of the Mexican businesses that were on the north side at that time. And so um, they were able to redo this entire stretch of what would what was Lansing's oldest uh, downtown. Like this used to be the downtown of Lansing. And on either end of this corridor, there were significant Mexican businesses and the, the geographic area for those stopped right before 
those Mexican businesses. So the Mexican businesses were excluded from this gentrification money and, and subsequently went out of business. I'm let's, gonna... let's not forget too that he was also supposedly a champion of labor, and yet uh, his you know police chief tear gassed uh, all the strikers at Melling Forge, you know, as well as the neighborhood over there on the north side that was surrounding Melling. Who did that? Who did that, right? That was Hollister. Hollister. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you know what you mentioned a grant? You said uh, to whatever re redo the north side. Do you know what grant it was? Why some of those businesses were excluded? I used to know the answer to that question. The grant itself, it was a federal grant, and you know they had to set up specific geographic boundaries. So right there in Washington, it went from Washington all the way down to Pennsylvania <laughs> on the other end. Well, yeah. no, no, not all the way to Pennsylvania. It cut off at the railroad tracks, at which railroad excluded tracks. all the Mexican businesses over there. That's right. As a result, what happened is that in 1997, you actually had in this you know small little Midwest town, you had significant Chicano business presence. There were restaurants and, and stores and bakeries and music shops and all that. And then shortly after this was implemented, all of those went out of business. Now, what becomes even more interesting is that this corridor then becomes like a, a sea of whiteness in the middle of a neighborhood that is or a whole area of town that is predominantly black and Latino, black and Chicano. And all of these people who are, well, most of them, not all of them, but the overwhelming majority of them were white and were coming from the suburbs into the north part of Lansing to build these uh, small boutique shops. Yeah. Man, those pictures are, are crazy. I've forgotten what it looked like over there. All right. Well, I have some facts here. Let me share this out with y'all. Uh, here are the 10 cities with where gentrification has been most intense. Washington, D.C., San Diego, California, New York, New York, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Atlanta, Georgia, Baltimore, Maryland, Portland, Oregon, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, so that's two, four, six, eight right there. Eight of those cities. How many of those have a large populations of uh, Latinos, Chicanos? I would say just about every city, every one of those cities, right? I'm not sure about Baltimore. I'm not sure about Baltimore, but I think all the rest of them have that same uh, characteristic. I think that one of the things that's important to, to keep in mind about this, it's really about the expendability of a group of people, right? In that, and they're expendable both ways. They're expendable in the sense that they're allowed to live in conditions that are subpar, where buildings are crumbling around them, um, you know, where crime is rampant. And nobody, nobody really thinks twice about that, right? And it isn't really until other uh, types of people, specifically white people with money, begin to move into those areas. I mean, for a variety of reasons. One, you know, the property values have been driven down to the point where it's actually, from a capitalistic standpoint, a really good investment to go into an area like this and, and you know, fix up the building and you have a place to live and you can, you know, do business out of there. But then the people who are there originally become expendable in the sense that it's time for them to leave, right? Their presence is expendable. I think, you know, when we think about gentrification, I mean, it's really easy and I, and I don't think it's inappropriate to 
point fingers and, and say, oh, you know, these people are, are they're in it for the money and all this other kind of stuff. But the underlying factor is that it's not just it's not just about the money. It is about how groups of people are perceived as uh, sort of like chess pieces that can be moved um, on and off of, you know, a planning board. Right. We need to move them out of here. We'll bring them in. They'll raise up the value of, of the neighborhood. I mean, this gentrification can happen, but it doesn't have to mean dislocation. I mean, it just doesn't. Right. So yeah. the question, so then the question then, you know, and taking Lansing into account in this, you know, the question is what can be done, right? So how do you solve it? How do you avoid it? How do you um, keep it in the community, right? Could there have been something done in the north side that um, an expanded uh, Lansing's own little, you know, what it already was, little Mexican strip, Chicano strip, you know, what can be done? How do, how do we avoid those things? Because that's, that's the main thing. It's an economic issue. How do we avoid it? It makes me think about how the messaging that we give our young people Right, because we want them to all go get, not me, but the messaging that we hear is go to school, get an education, go get a good job, do better so you can get out. So you, you can go live with white people in the suburbs or live in a fancier neighborhood. And so we're pushing our, our families, our children away to go somewhere else. And I think we're losing a lot of that economic mobility that we could have, and we're pushing it out. Instead of saying, come back, invest your money here, start your business here, we're telling them to go do it somewhere else. And I think that's part of our issue is, you know, we're not incorporating our young folk into this and saying, this is a viable opportunity for yeah, I mean, I think that gentrification is is one of those things that that produces, you know, a, a question, right? So it's a fundamental question, the contradiction of who we are doing these things for, right? Who do we go to school for? Do we do it for ourselves? Do we do it to become part of, you know, the greater community? What is the uh, mental and emotional and spiritual process that impels us? to think that we have something to prove to white folks. That's a big part of this. And I think it's a big part of the question. And I think it's a big part of what holds us back from changing sometimes the areas that we live in from, you know, like this picture from May 1997 to May 2013, because we have this idea that if we are only producing, only increasing, only pushing forward within our own community, that somehow our effort is uh, subpar to the point that we're not succeeding. I mean, if, if we're only successful in our neighborhood, then we're not successful. And as, like, I think that kind of gets to the whole root of, of, um, of the different value system, right? Like, like she had mentioned how that was always the goal, right? You, you go to school, you get the education, and then you move out, right? That was like, that's the, the success. That was the value system taught to us. In a sense, wanting to go back, it's like a, it's contradicting that that what's been in, we've been kind of indoctrinated with. So the idea is to go back to the community and, and take all that education, take all that 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 uh, that human and that that capital, 
and then invested in your own community, which goes entirely against what we in main, what like in mainstream America, you get taught to do. Um, and so that, that think about what kind of individuals it takes to already have that kind of consciousness to say, Hey, I'm going to go all that I've been working for as far as getting an education, getting, developing some kind of human capital. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to take that and invest it and go into my community and do that. It happens, but it's, it's, uh, it's rare individuals. Right. Um, and then I think I've seen, you know, and there's even a term for it. I'm sure y'all have heard of it where they, they talk about not gentrify, but gentify, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where the gente go, you know, goes back and, and all that. There's been some issues with that because um, some people are kind of pointing out, I mean, it was inevitable that even though people are coming back into the community and they're quote gente, they, uh, they still, there's the, the, the issue of class where now they've kind of gone away, gotten educated, done this. Sure, they have a consciousness of wanting to come back and to do something within the community but on the basis of class, they've changed a little bit. So they're, they're changing the whole, there's class issues that are getting involved. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't have a, an answer for it. Just, just something that, that, uh, that I thought I'd throw in there. No. And you bring up a great point. You know, how is it that we, the people affect, you know, the residents, how is it that we affect it? There's mention of uh, gentrification in boys in the hood. Right. And they talk, one of the guys talking about, you know, uh, how the people, you know, or gang banging, selling drugs, you know, are they setting it up? Are, you know, does that kind of open the door, that part of the open the door? Again, to Alex's point, um, you know, about what we're taught, you know, is it that we see economics, sometimes we see economics, oh, you know, he's got monies, you know, he thinks he's all that. Is that part of the problem too? You know, how do we open that up if it's an economic issue? and we're acting collectively, it is maybe part of the answer, you know? Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to set up banks, but how do you use some of that old, you know, in, in my thinking, I think of a tanda. I don't know if you guys, if you all are familiar with tandas, right? But I know in Mexico, tanda, and my family would be involved with tandas, and it's where everybody would pitch in some money, right? Right. And every week, somebody pitches in some money, and every different week, the pot gets spread around to different people, you know? So I don't know, is, is, is something like that doable? Is that? Um... Other communities have been able to pull it off, right? I mean, if you look at a lot of the Asian communities, that's how they've been able to start Chinatowns across the country. Right. Yeah. Right? And yeah, I was just going to say that it's, it's the same concept as Francisco was talking about, except that pot goes to start a business right you know so when one person opens up a business then they start contributing more to the pot and until each family that contributes has their own business but you know what that goes to a bigger point and and a lot of what a lot of minority business owners talk about and is that do we properly support minority-owned businesses i don't i don't know the answer to that i don't have any facts but it's often discussed and what a lot of them will say, and I've heard small business owners who are minority say this, is, well, when our people do support our business, they also want a discount or expect a discount. So I guess, you know, when it comes to Lansing or a lot of these other situations, when we talk about somebody going out of business, is that a factor? I don't know. I'm just kind of talking out loud here. 
do we support them at a proper level? I don't know. I mean, I know there's some financial issues in there, you know, and sometimes you got to find the cheapest option, you know, when it comes to your home finances. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I think what like we like it's been mentioned. It's a learned process, right? It's what we're taught. It's a habit you get into, um, you know. And sometimes, yeah, right. Sacrifice is part of it. But I hear, I, I hear you, Danny. You know, that's not always a, a, an option for for everybody. But I think that's part of it, right? It's just me that it's taught. That's my my take on it, right? Something we need to teach. Right, and I, I think about how. You know, we make fun of each other, right? You're bougie, oh, you know, and so if you're not poor, if you're not low income, if you don't, you know, you exhibit these signs that you're not, then does that mean you're selling out to the community, right? Does it mean you're acting white, that you want to be white, right? And, and I know we've, we've joked around with, uh, with each other, with our friends, with our circles, and, and making that, like, nobody wants to be bougie, right? Oh, so I like how being, do we... I like being bougie. <laughs> hey, man, that... there, you can there's put certain things I like about water. bougie-ness, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, I like to get them expensive tortillas, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the, for, yellow corn tortillas. For the, uh, for the, yeah, I've been I've been known to enjoy a pretty good bottle of wine and some cheeses and uh, <laughs> and meats and. Uh, Give me a cigar. I'm okay. I'm, I can deal with it. Cigar. Well, I was uh, I was uh, uh, joking with a coworker about Alex's uh, near uh, her suburban uh, Detroit accent, and uh, although I did before I said uh, all that, I said, "Hey, all that aside, when Alex says to go do something like this uh, spreadsheet, I just go do it." <laughs> I think just just real quick, I give a, a, a ridiculous, uh, extreme example. I got a good friend of mine down Chicano who thinks that you're bougie if you've gotten dental work done to straighten your teeth. I'm like, man, you got to calm down, dude. You know, like. Yeah, you weren't you weren't like preach, brother preach. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, homie, homie needs to he needs to reevaluate that stance. That's because uh, there's some crooked tooth motherfuckers running around. There. <laughs> the, um, hey, hey not you guys making me self conscious. <laughs> was, that, was that person's name? Uh, was that Ted Alvarez? Reiner. The next question then. What businesses do we open? You know, so we're talking about, okay, so it's about the businesses supporting the community. What kind of businesses do we open? You know, is it going to be the taco shop, every other building? You know, so I live in Brooklyn and Brooklyn is probably one of the top places in that list that you were saying, Francisco, from earlier. I think we were number two or three where you've seen a tremendous amount of gentrification and liking and wanting something nice is not a bad thing, but I think part of the reason that for me gentrification is, you know, the evil is that people come in here and they flip a house or a brownstone or an apartment and it's ridiculously expensive. And then the people, regular folk, right, cannot afford to live there. So I live in a neighborhood that 
the average one bedroom apartment is about $3,500. And you're talking about less than 900 square feet. A month? A yeah. month, right? Yep. So yeah, no. you think about how much then you have to earn, right? So it's 30% of your salary. So how much do you as a single person need to make to afford a $3,500 a month apartment? And so that's not to say that you don't have and then it changes if you have a family, if you have a partner, like what, how, think about how much you have to make. So I look around my neighborhood and I'm like, what are these people doing? What's their job that they're making so much money? Like, I'm very lucky. I live in a rent stabilized apartment, right? It is not market value, but it's, it's crazy when I think about what regular people make and if you're talking somewhere about $50,000, $60,000 to $125,000, right? Then people who make in the middle, they're priced out. They're not going to be able to live here and everybody you see it. So in the heart of Brooklyn, and I do, I live right in the heart of Brooklyn, people are just moving out and further away. And it's all these communities of color, African-American, Black people, Latino people who used to live here, who no longer live here, and they live in the outskirts, right? So everybody's living in the outskirts of all of the boroughs. If you look at Manhattan, I think the average Manhattan apartment is about $4,500 yeah. for a, like an 800 square foot apartment. I don't know anybody who lives in Manhattan outside of like New York housing, right? So that's why I think it's, it's so hard. And when you think about like the businesses that are here, businesses can't survive unless we're supporting them. And we tried, there was this woman literally handing out flyers on our street and it had a list of about 10 different black owned businesses. And she's handing these flyers down. She's like, support small black businesses. Right. And I thought it was really great. And then I took a picture of it and I keep it on my phone. So if we need somewhere to go or to eat or to go buy something, I try to look at the list to see how I can support in my own way. And now with this platform, you know, we all know people who have businesses. Is this something that we can use as a platform to, to give a space for small businesses to, to get out into our communities? Okay. Yes. No, I, I, okay. That's all we got for today. No, <laughs> Alice just shut it down. Oh, like, what's up? What up? Right. Well, you know, make sure you get some boxes and some tape because we're moving. We're moving. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it, the whole thing sort of fits together, right? Like part of what Alex, one of the really good questions that Alex posed to all of us, uh, you know, a little while ago was this idea of being bougie and you know how everybody, nobody wants to be bougie, but the reality is, is that everybody wants to be bougie, right? I mean, that that's really the reality because if that wasn't true, then we wouldn't be having a conversation about gentrification <laughs> at all. Right. So, I mean, I think that part of understanding is that um, there's a couple of things and one, you know, having nice things does not, equate to assimilation. Many mm -hmm. people in the countries where people come from who have really nice things, these two things aren't, aren't equal to each other is what, is what I'm trying to say. 
So once right. we once we begin to understand that, what we also begin to understand is that struggle, like political struggle, economic struggle, social struggle, isn't about having less, right? I mean, we're not struggling so that we have less, so that we so we have a, a worse place to live, so that we don't have better schools. I mean, we're struggling to like make all of those things better in our lives. So I think that that's also really important to to keep in mind. We're fighting to make our lives better. So when we pretend that certain aspects of our lives are better, that somehow that's selling out. I mean, we're sending an inverse message to everybody that's around us. And I think to our, ourselves also. I think in terms of the type of businesses that we start, actually, Francisco, I think that that's a really great question because I think it also opens up a whole nother aspect in terms of thinking about ourselves as a, a community, you know, that has 360 degrees of participation because everybody doesn't think the same, man. But that doesn't mean that they're not, they're not Chicano or they're not Mexican just because they don't agree with you 100%, right? I mean, all these fools that are running around with these MAGA hats, right? I don't agree with them. I think they're fucking idiots, okay? But are they American citizens? Unfortunately, yes, they are, right? That part's true. They're an American citizen. I'm an American citizen. That shows you the scope of the spectrum in terms of like what it is that people can believe in and still be a part of this of this group. I think that part of the problem is, is that we haven't learned how to do that. I mean, we, for as much as people in the Chicano Latino community make fun of things like ideology, they are some of the most ideological ones of all, man. Because if, if, if you don't agree with them, then they, then it's over. It's yeah, it's done. Right. So I think that that's where the business part comes in too, because I think that actually what we should be doing is starting all kinds of businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Everything yeah. that we see, we should be doing and taquerias. Very important, right? But you can only have so many taquerias, right? I mean, but we can have newspapers, <laughs> we can have branding companies, we can have social media. There are people, you know, who do the the computer stuff, the kind of stuff that I've been struggling with the last couple of days, people who make podcasts, right? Influencers. I mean, all of that. And just because we do that, it's not it's not necessarily selling out. I mean, it could be, but it isn't necessarily. I would just like to add that the uh, taquerias have to be good taquerias. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, so doesn't that doesn't that kind of? I mean, I agree with you 100, percent man. Doesn't doesn't that go back to having a certain kind of consciousness? And like, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, uh, open any damn business you want. As long as you also want to use it maybe to a certain degree for that, that financing to go back to the community in some way, whatever, even if it's to, to develop human capital, if it's to, um, to whatever. But part of that is, like I said before, I think I, on, on one of the other things we've done or in an email I sent, you know, the difference between um, Hispanic businessmen and Chicano entrepreneurs, right? right. You know, it, it's a difference in you have two agendas. One, of course the entrepreneurial, the business itself and the functioning and the bottom line and all that. But then another avenue is I want to use some of that, that success and that financial resource towards the community. So man, open up whatever business. That's great. 
the difference if we had if we had more um, people who had that kind of consciousness, I, I'm all for it. Even if you think about Marxism, I mean, Marx is talking about the bourgeoisie yeah. and he's talking about the proletariat, but he's also talking about the role that the petit bourgeoisie plays in um, in revolution, right? And basically, sure. you know, in, in identifying these small business owners as individuals who, you know, are a revolutionary force in the sense that they have the capital to to fund or to support, you know, revolutionary activity. I mean, one of the craziest things I ever saw, and it was kind of crazy at the time, and I think about it still to this day, I was living in Detroit and we were driving around on the east side somewhere and we rode by this McDonald's and they had the McDonald's flag on the flag post and then right underneath it, they had the R RGB, right? The, the, the Black Liberation flag was flying at McDonald's. I was just like, okay, I mean, now there's something you don't see every day, but I mean, maybe you should see it every day, you know? It's an interesting take on on black liberation, right? I mean, if we're stuck in a in an economic system that requires us to trade our labor for survival, then you know, is that flag flying there really all that strange? I mean, I, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure that it is, right? And then how do the people who own the restaurant, I mean, how are they interacting with their employees? I mean, it's just kind of like what Carlos was saying a second ago. There's all sorts of ways that we can think about how to how to challenge, you know, social norms. I think particularly in business and in the way that we interact in, in our neighborhoods. This show that's on right now that we've kind of been talking about over the last couple of episodes, uh, Vita. I mean, it's all about the gentrification of Boyle Heights. I think that's the neighborhood that that they're focusing on. And, you know, you have this whole group of uh, young activists. They're pretty young. I'd say they're probably in their, like, late 20s, right? Who are just going through that neighborhood just confronting people, like crazy confronting them. And for the most part, what they're doing is confronting white business owners who are moving in. But then you have, you know, a couple of sisters who grew up in that neighborhood who left and then came back and have taken over a family business who are being confronted by the by these uh, same individuals, you know, doing the whole coconut Barbie, you know, Hispanic type thing. You know, I got to wonder, I mean, is that, is that, is that really where we want to go with all of this? Because it doesn't seem particularly productive to think that our missions have to align totally all the time. No, yeah. I, I, I agree with, I believe it's Carlos, right? Yes, sir. I, I agree with what you were saying, you know, it doesn't matter the business. So maybe what we're really after is how do we connect Latino, the Chicano money to that business, right? So we support the community. That's what Alex, you were talking about, right? That platform. Maybe that is what we need, what we need to put together. That seems to be, to be one of the first steps. If I could also say like, just, I've seen bits and pieces of it here locally. There was a local, uh, a local guy. So it's kind of funny because back in the day, uh, I, I, me and some others, we co-founded a, a nonprofit kind of a youth mural project thing here. There was a lot of gang stuff going on in San Antonio during the eighties and nineties. And so we put this mural project together. Anyway, the, the story is a, this, uh, this young guy there is young, like call him, you know, like a kid at the time 
Well, later on, this kid, he was around us the whole time. He later on grew up, obviously, and opened up a couple of businesses. He opened up, uh, like, some bars, but, like, higher-end, you know, kind of bars, cultural stuff, nightclubs, music venues. Yeah. And, man, this guy was down. I mean, he would put money. He would fund shows. He would bring in uh, political acts. He would give to, to benefits and the charity. You know, all he could, putting that money that he had, back into the community because he had that kind of consciousness. So like on one level, he was a young entrepreneur starting up, opening up music venues and, and, and uh, local bars. Uh, but then he would put that money back, back in and also give a, a public space for people to, to talk politics, to bring certain types of bands, to, to all of that kind of stuff, open it up to poetry readings, to, to local Chicano, Latino, uh, new African uh, poets and artists. So when you have the, the convergence of that kind of stuff, man, it can be powerful. I mean, it can be, it can be really powerful. It's just, um, what are we doing to develop that kind of crop of people? Most of us are more on the humanity side. Right. <laughs> flower, pretty flower. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it is, it's about options, you know, that, that's why we, that's why we study. That's why, you know, we put that work in, so you can have those options in life. Yeah, I agree. With all those those connections and that community, you get the culture, you know? Now, the other thing with gentrification is, is it just that it's gonna be completely changed, you know? It's gonna, Boyle Heights is gonna look different, you know, so different 10, 20 years from now? Or is it gonna be that it's gonna be, you know, I think uh, Todd, you made, you made reference to this before, um, with uh, with the one author, Richard Rodriguez, right? Where he talks about, you know, is it biting heads or is it, you know, where one consumes the other? And we want our culture, our presence to be, you know, the one that consumes the other. How do we, you know, maybe that's what, the, what we need to do to get ahead in gentrification. That's really an interesting question, I think. The way that we perceive gentrification has a lot to do with the, the question that, that you just asked. I think um, there's this uh, gentleman, Guillermo Bonfield Batalla, who is a, a Mexican anthropologist. He wrote a book. This is a really good book, man. Anybody that's listening, you should get this book and read it. It's called Mexico Profundo. But like in the opening pages of that book, Bonfield Batalla says that there is a an ongoing confrontation between Mesoamerican society and Western European civilization. These two civilizations are in permanent confrontation with each other until one ultimately destroys the other, right? It's huge, man. I mean, when I read that, it really shook me. You know, I mean, I had to really think about that, that statement. It was, for me, it was, that was one of those moments where I had to like kind of put the book down and be all like, is this true? Like, is, is what this guy's saying really true? Is there really a permanent confrontation between Mesoamerican civilization and Western European civilization, right? Because, I mean, on one level, it appears that that confrontation is over, right? That there's really, that there's not. But, I mean, if you really look at it, right, if you look at Mexico Profundo, that that is happening, that there is, there is a veneer of Western civilization over what deep Mexico really is, right? And that, that, that it's still there, it's still emerging is still fighting to to come out from underneath that. And I think it's the same thing 
even with gentrification. I mean, we are never going to out capitalist white boys. And it's not because we're not smarter than they are or they're smarter than we are or we couldn't do it. It's because this system was set up by them, right? The rules favor them, okay? So when we think about how to stop gentrification, I mean, this is one of those moments, I think, or one of those, yeah, one of those situations where you have to really even think about like the whole, um, that quote from Audre Lorde about how the master's tools will never dismantle, you know, the master's house, right? Now, that quote's used out of context quite a bit. <laughs> if you read the rest of it, you know, you kind of get an idea of what she was saying. But I think that in this particular instance, that's kind of true. We, you know, we're not going to necessarily figure out a way to outdo these guys at their own game. So the question is, and I think that this is part of what we've been talking about this whole time, is what's our game look like, right? How do we stop it our own way, you know? And I mean, yeah, sure. One thing is for sure. If we live in a neighborhood and we support local business, we support Chicano-owned, Latino-owned businesses, then they won't go out of business. They'll, they'll be solid and, you know, and as long as they do the things they're supposed to do, provide a good service, you know, a decent taco, you know what I'm saying? A good bowl of menudo, right? I mean, I'll, I'll spend my six, seven bucks. You know, I've got no problem putting my money down on the counter. So, I mean, this is the, it, this is the thing though, is that we have to do it a different way. The thing that you were talking about earlier, Francisco, did you call it a tanda? Yeah, the tanda. Yeah, the tanda. I mean, like Alex said, civilizations all over the world use that concept, right? But we don't use it here in the United States, man, because we are so indoctrinated by internalized racism and by the, the, the straits of settler colonialism that we can't even trust each other enough to think that somebody else could have our interest in our best interest in their mind. So we're, I mean, until we get past that, we're done. We're cooked, man. They'll yeah. always have us. They'll yeah. always have us. You know, and it, Ernesto, like we've talked about, I mean, tons of times on, on with Mexicanos 2070, uh, like um, the answers are within our own culture. Like you mentioned the tandas. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a concept that's been, I mean, it's been a while since I've heard it. But I remember that. I mean, I mean, I remember learning about that. It's even within our own culture. I mean, I, I'm hoping we start getting back to the idea of the the mutualistas, the mutualist organizations, man, who back in the 1910, 1915, 1918, 1920, I mean, those were the organizations that really kept the Mexicano community alive. Yeah. You know? Yep. Uh if you look at the mutualistas, I can't think of a time in our history right like, right now where we need organizations like the mutualista organizations, self-help, self-preservation organizations. I mean, but it's there. It's in our culture. It's in our history. But how many of us know that? That we can even reach in there, you know? Yeah, I think it's... You know, I think back with my parents, right? And my parents are immigrants. And that whole notion that I was raised on, right? And the American dream and doing it on your own and having your own 
car and your own house and your own little job. Right. And it, and we did not value reliance on others, right? Especially mm. my dad. My dad's like, you don't need nobody. Nobody's going to do you, especially no man. He's not going to do anything for you. Yeah. And, and so I think... But now, having children of my own, I'm really trying to instill in my children in the sense of community. And even though we don't have any family here in Brooklyn, right, we've created our own family. Like, right. I know many of you know Sasha. Sasha lives like a mile down the street from us, and our kids play together, and we hang out. And, and that's our community. And so how we're, we think about how are we creating or recreating some sort of community to to rely on one another and and I, I think that's where it starts like where do we live who lives around who do we choose to live around right who do we want to be our neighbors and how do we want to be neighborly and, and I, you know, as a parent those are things that I'm trying to think about with my own children as they get older and not go to school and get out I want them to come back I want them to have a place where they feel is home yeah yeah. Are you guys familiar with um, Chicano author Mario Barrera? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, okay. Uh, but in, in that book, uh, Beyond Atslan, he, he kind of puts some interesting things together and he talks about the big dilemma we have, the big contradiction is that the desire for what he calls equality, which means like being treated right, having access to, to, a good education, all those kinds of things, and then community. And the, were, the two were always pitted against each other. That in order to have one, this society tells you you have to assimilate, you have to this, you have to give up your culture, you have to get away from your community, you have to do all that. Uh, because if you hold on to community, you're going to stay stuck in the barrio, you're going to stay stuck with your, you're with the, this community that's kept whatever. And really, the great contradiction between the Chicano-Mexicano community and many other communities is the desire for both. We, we, we honestly have the desire for both. We yeah. want all of those good things that, that every human wants, what you could call human rights, uh, access to education, uh, relevant education, all those things, but yet still our sense of community and culture. We want both. And this society pits that against each other. So how do we, how do we kind of uh, address that contradiction? You know? Great point. Great point. You know, it, it is. It's about uh, it's about community, and that's it. How do you, how do you? Maybe that's the answer, right? Isn't that the answer? How do you how do you stop gentrification? Community. I mean, I think community yeah. certainly has a lot to do with it. I mean, yeah. If I had my com complete way, man, I to be ugly, but I don't want to live in an all white neighborhood. Like I've lived around there, and it's <laughs> it's kind of. You know, it's whatever. I don't want to live there. I, I like to live around the gente, but I don't want to live in a war zone either. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm with you on that one, 100%. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that this is one of those questions, it's one of those subjects, too, that um, is probably in some ways going to present the most um, challenge to our community. Uh, it certainly already has over the, you know, the last couple of decades. And I think it will continue into the future to be challenging because it, it's not just because of the displacement. I mean, the displacement is, is a big part of it. 
But I think that what it really does, what this process of gentrification really does is it forces us to to move out of the these comfort zones that we've set up or that have been set up for us. And I, I use the word comfort zones, you know, loosely, right? But areas, you know, that we've been confined to and that we're familiar with and and we feel comfortable in, you know, when that's disrupted, I mean, we're forced to rethink a lot of things, right? And and one of the things I think that we're confronted with is our own failure at assimilation. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are all like, oh, well, I don't want to assimilate anyways. But, you know, there's a sense of failure, right? I mean, we're not rich. We don't have a nice car. You know, we don't own three houses. Um, maybe we didn't get to go to college, right? All of those things are markers of failure in the society. And so mm-hmm. whether whether or not we consciously, you know, recognize that, I mean, unconsciously, we've internalized these ideas. And so, you know, having to confront those then, I mean, you can see why people get so crazy about, you know, a couple of blocks. I mean, it's it's a big deal. And, you know, the idea that that gentrification can only happen if, you know, I, I said this in the beginning, but I think it's important to reiterate that process of gentrification or sprucing up a neighborhood, you know, can only happen um, when white people move in, right, is, I think, further evidence of, you know, our failure at achieving this uh, so-called American dream. And mm-hmm. it's, um, it's brutal, man. I mean, there's, there's no way to win this except by banding together and creating a new set of rules that allow us to uh, determine what the markers for success are outside of any sort of comparison with another group of people. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That's all we have for today want to thank everyone that is listening and continues to listen. Gentrification is a problem that goes to the heart of who we are as a community because it reifies the conquest and continual displacement of indigenous people. The only way Chicanos and Latinos will be able to confront social issues like gentrification is to build political and economic structures that transform our community through mobilization and self-reliance. Until next time, stay brown, buy brown, think brown. Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.